following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. invite you, church, to turn in your Bibles to the 15th chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to begin by asking you a question. How biblical is your view of salvation? I'm not referring to the experience of salvation in the here and now. I'm referring to salvation in its big picture. Salvation from beginning to end. The great plan of salvation that we read about in Scripture, beginning in God's purpose, gracious purpose of election and climaxing in us being glorified with our Lord Jesus Christ. How biblical is your view of salvation this morning? And I ask that question because I fear that many Christians in our day, and even in a congregation like ours, have a view of salvation that is simply too narrow, simply too small, and not broad enough, and thus not biblical enough. For example... How many of you would be content to depart right now and to be with our Lord Jesus eternally in a sort of immaterial, incorporeal, disembodied form of existence? In other words, like a ghost. If we're honest, many of us would say, it doesn't really matter what form of existence I find myself in after I die. As long as I'm with Christ in heaven, that's all that matters to me. But while many of us would be content to live eternally with Christ as disembodied spirits, the Bible tells us in very clear language that that is not God's will for us. He intends for us in our eternal state to live in bodies Glorified bodies, yes, but bodies nonetheless. This has been the hope of the saints ever since the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And on the sixth day, he created Adam. And we're told that Adam was composed of flesh and bone just like we are. And as someone once wisely said, if you want to know God's will for the end and for the future, just look to the beginning and how it all started. But Adam was created, flesh and bone, to live and commune with God in the Garden of Eden in in a body. 
And even when Eve was created, Adam confessed, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This was the hope of suffering Job, whom many believed lived before Moses. He said in the 19th chapter, in verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last, at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. You see, Job understood that one day in his flesh, in the body, he would see his Redeemer. With his own eyes, which are a part of his body, he would behold his Redeemer. God promised the people in the days of Isaiah, Your dead shall live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. What a picture. One day, the earth would give birth to all those who have died, and they will stand before Yahweh. Biblical salvation entails bodily resurrection. Daniel 12.2, many of those who sleep in the dust shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Even King David said to God in Psalm 16, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption or decay. In other words, you're not going to ultimately let my body rot in the ground forever. He understood that. Jump forward about a thousand years. When Lazarus died, John chapter 11, his sister Martha said to Jesus, and she had her theology, right? I know that my brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She knew it. In that great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer tells us that women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. In other words, the martyrs of the Old Testament understood that they would one day rise again to a better life. Biblical salvation entails bodily resurrection, friends. Our Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 6, we who love our Reformed theology love to quote this, but I fear we miss out on some little details in it. John 6, 39, Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You see, he comes for a people, and in his saving purpose, he purposes to raise his people up on the last day. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Skip ahead to verse 44. 
No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Resurrection. Paul the Apostle said to the Philippians, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul understood that at the return of Christ, our bodies would be transformed to be like his glorious body. This was Paul's hope. Even if he didn't live to see the return of Christ, he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That was Paul's hope. He told the Christians in Rome in that monumental eighth chapter of Romans, if the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. When would that happen? Well, we'd keep going a little bit further. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Now listen to this. The redemption of our bodies. Paul understood on that last day, the Holy Spirit would raise up our mortal bodies and we would be glorified with Christ. So I ask you again, is your view of salvation biblical? Does it entail, does it contain, does it have room for a future bodily resurrection of your body? Does it involve that? Because biblically, that's the teaching. Our bodies will be raised and transformed and glorified and fit for the new heaven and the new earth. Sadly, though, there are instances in the history of the church where the world and the pagan culture surrounding the church begins to influence the church and derail the church and her beliefs. And that's exactly what had happened in Corinth in the days of Paul. The Greek philosophers, the Greek culture, really prized the inner man, the inner woman, the soul, if you will. And they viewed as the ultimate goal of life is to be one day freed from the body, to be shaken free from this body, and liberated from the body and its decay and to live in the spirit in the afterlife. That was their goal. And so they viewed this body that we have as fundamentally bad and undesirable. And so hearing that week in and week out began to influence the Corinthian church so that the resurrection, the future resurrection of the body was both undesirable and unnecessary. 
They thought, why in the world, if, we're, if, we're, if, if we spend all our days longing to be delivered from this body, why in the world would we want to one day be reunited with this corpse, with this body, with this broken down tent? Why in the world would we want that? Why in the world would we need that? And so 1 Corinthians 15, contrary to most people's belief, many people's beliefs, is not necessarily a defense of the resurrection of Christ. They weren't denying that, as we're going to see here. They were denying the bodily resurrection, the future resurrection of believers, of Christians. And so what I want to do this morning is walk you through the glory of this chapter. Perhaps one of the longest chapters in the New Testament, but I want to give it to you in one full sweep. Of course, that will not allow me to go into some of the details, but I want you to see it as it was in their day, read all at once. And I want you to get a feel for the hope we have for the resurrection of the body and the hope we have in that one day death will die. And so the title of my sermon this morning is The Promise of Resurrection and the Death of Death. And so, first thing I'd like to call your attention to this morning is in verses 1 through 11, the resurrection of Christ is essential to the gospel. The resurrection of Christ is essential to the gospel. I want to take you through this chapter in seven steps. This is the first step, that the resurrection of Christ is essential to the gospel. Notice what Paul says. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So we see very clearly here that the Corinthians accepted Paul's message. They had believed it. They were standing in it. And they are called here to persevere in it, to hold fast to the word, unless they had believed in vain. And he goes on in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul says, I didn't come up with this. I received this myself. And then I relate it to you. Namely, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with, with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So he says here that the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ are rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. And we see that in Psalm 22, in Isaiah 53. We read about the resurrection in Psalm 16. He says, this is nothing new. He says, verse 5, and that Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So he's showing them that you have embraced the teaching that Jesus died for our sins, that is in our place, substitutionary atonement, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You've received it, you're standing in it, and you believe it. Now this is important because because they believed in the resurrection of Christ, that required them, in Paul's mind, to believe in the resurrection of the followers of Christ. Because they believed in the resurrection of the head, they must believe in the resurrection of the body. As we're going to see, they're inextricably connected. That's the first step, is that the resurrection of Christ is essential to the gospel. Let's go a little bit further. Step number two. Picture these as stepping stones across the river of Resurrection Sunday. The resurrection, secondly, of believers is inseparably connected to the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of believers is inseparably connected to the resurrection of Christ. That's verses 12 through 18. Listen to this. Verse 12 tells us why 1 Corinthians 15 exists. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? In other words, I get that you're not denying the resurrection of Jesus, but there are some, some of you, saying that there is no future resurrection for the believer. You see, the two are connected as he's going to prove. And Paul, in his typical fashion, and we need more preachers like this today, we need more Christians like this today who show the logical inconsistencies of people's reasoning sometimes. In other words, if you believe this, then you have to believe this because this is a consequence of this. If A, then B, right? If this is what you're going to go down, this is what you need to understand. These are the consequences of what will follow. And now he lists seven horrible consequences of denying the resurrection of the body, the resurrection of believers. Because again, the resurrection of believers is connected to the resurrection of Christ. Seven horrible consequences. Look at the first one. Verse 13. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Consequence number one is that the apostles' preaching is in vain. Look at verse 13. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Consequence number two. Your faith, Corinthians, is in vain. Consequence number three, verses 15 and 16. That means, he says, we are misrepresenting God. He says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, 
whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Consequence number four. The Corinthians are believing for no purpose. Look at 17a, if you will. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's empty. It's for no purpose. Consequence number five, you are still in your sins. Consequence number six, verse 18, it means that every believer who has died will perish. He says in verse 18, then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Have perished. They're gone. There's no hope for them. Your loved ones, you're never going to see them again if there's no resurrection of the dead. Consequence number seven. You of all people are to be pitied. Look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only. In other words, if all we have to look forward to are the benefits that Jesus brings us in this life and there's no final resurrection to prepare us for the next life. He says, you of all people, we, he includes himself, we of all people are to be pitied. It's a sad, sad reality. If there's no resurrection of Christ and no resurrection For the people of Christ in the future, you of all people are to be pitied. Why? Because all this effort, all this singing, all this evangelizing, all of this living and seeking to put sin to death, you of all people are to be pitied because none of that ultimately matters if Christ is not raised. By the way, let's think about it. If Christ was not raised... This building might exist, but we would not be here this morning if Christ was not raised. Why? There'd be no gospel to proclaim. There would be no book of Acts. Maybe two chapters of the book of Acts, right? Them in the upper room, scared, waiting, no spirit being poured out. Why? Because Christ is still in the ground. He's still in the grave. It was when he ascended to the right hand of his father that he sent forth a spirit to empower the church to proclaim that he had died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of power where he commands all people to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And of this, God has given proof to all because he rose, he raised his son from death. That's step two, folks. The resurrection of believers is inseparably connected to the resurrection of Christ. You can't say that Jesus rose, but his people will not rise. And he's going to develop that in these next verses. And these these happen to be just, I've been soaking in these verses all week, just reading the whole thing, seeking to understand Paul's reasoning, his argument. And if if you are able to, and you, you will, you do have time. I know you have time because you do things throughout the week and you have leisure time. 
I would urge you to just soak and sit in 1 Corinthians 15 to understand the flow of thought, to understand the arguments, to understand where he's going with this. Because when you understand it, it really is rich. It really is nourishing to our faith. Stepping stone number three, the resurrection of Christ guarantees the resurrection of believers and the death of death. I say it again. It's a big stepping stone. The resurrection of Christ guarantees the resurrection of believers and the death of death. Listen to this. Verse 20. So here, under this heading, we're looking at verses 20 through 34. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And notice what he refers to Jesus as. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, this language of first fruits is not a not a hard concept to understand. We read about it primarily in the Old Testament. But it goes like this. Let's say Farmer Blake goes out this afternoon and he plants his tomatoes in his garden there in the west side of El Paso. And two weeks later, he, he gets a, a first crop of lush tomatoes. Those are his first fruits. And those first fruits guarantee a greater harvest. In other words, when he brings in those tomatoes to his wife to make some salsa on Sunday afternoon, that is proof that there is more to come. These are the first fruits. This is the first fruits of a long line of tomatoes, a long line of crops. That's Paul's point here, is that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is the first one to rise. And after that, when? We'll see when this happens. It's not until the end. But this guarantees the resurrection of the Son guarantees the resurrection of all those who believe in the Son because they're connected, inseparably, instricably connected. You see, Paul develops this elsewhere in his epistles. And it's a very deep theology that is deduced from two simple words, in Christ or in him. We are in Christ. So when he died, guess what? We died with him. When he was buried, Romans 6 tells us that we also were buried, therefore, with him. Our sin was buried with him. But gloriously true, when he rose again, guess what? We were raised up with him in two ways. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we were raised with him, and Romans 6 talks about this as well, raised with him in newness of life. In other words, when he rose, that secured our new regenerated life in him. When he rose, we were raised with him spiritually, but it doesn't end there. When, we were, when he was raised, we were raised with him spiritually, and we will be raised with him physically. And that's the argument of 1 Corinthians 15. And again, we can't fall short of the bodily resurrection. 
I get that we could all celebrate Romans 6 and he, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And yes, God raised us up with him, seated us in the heavenly places. We were dead and he made us alive spiritually. And many of us would be content to stay there and to live there. And I'm not denying that would be glorious, but God has even more. God has us not being raised spiritually alone, but being raised physically, body and soul. Our souls have been brought to him. But one day our bodies will catch up too. Our bodies will be raised up too. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The idea, the concept, the teaching of first fruits entails with it the language of absolute guarantee. Those first crops guarantee a full and rich harvest to come. And that's exactly Paul's point here. And now notice how he, contra- he contrasts the two heads of humanity here. Two covenant heads over all of humanity, Adam and Christ. Look at verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Isn't this glorious? Adam brought death when he sinned against God, when he failed to protect his wife, when he partook of the forbidden fruit, he sinned against God. And right after that horrible chapter of the fall, Genesis chapter 3, we come and we see death appearing all over the place. And in chapter 5 of Genesis, we have this dark roll call of death. This guy was born and he died. He lived 800 years and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. But then Seth lived 912 years and he died and he died and he died and he died and he lived and he fathered this person, but he died. That's exactly Paul's point here. For as by a man came death, so also by another man has come the resurrection of the dead, the reversal of death. Look at verse 22. For as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, some people have used this verse to teach universalism, that every one in humanity will be raised up and made alive with Christ and enter into glory. But that's not what Paul says, because look at verse 23. But, which connects that to verse 22, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So again, in verse 22, the all who are being made alive are the same ones in verse 23 who belong to Christ. This does not teach universalism. The only universal aspect in this, te- in this chapter is that in Adam, all die. So long as you remain in Adam, remain in sin, enslaved to sin, in love with sin, you will die. You will die, and what we've 
talked about many times from this pulpit, death is not merely the ceasing of existence, the cessation of existence. Death is separation. It's not just separation of the body and the soul. It's the separation between the sinner and the goodness and graciousness of God. It's being separated from the God of life and being banished to the lake of fire. Sin and death, sin brings death, and death is essentially banishment. Death is separation. That's why Genesis chapter 3 ends with God banishing Adam from the garden. And we've looked at that before, that, that when, when, when it says that God drove out the man, that word is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe divorce. There was a great divorce that happened at the end of Genesis chapter 3. Adam was divorced from life, divorced from paradise, divorced from light, divorced from God. And everyone born in Adam's sinful line is born alienated, separated, banished from God. Hence the need for the gospel to bring us back into fellowship with God. As in Adam, all die. There's two covenant heads over all of humanity today, brothers and sisters. There's Adam, and if you stay in Adam, I mean, you're born in Adam. You enter into this world connected to Adam, a descendant of Adam, but if you remain there, you will enter a lifeless, Christless eternity. You need to be brought out of Adam and into Christ, and that happens when you turn from your sins and you believe the gospel that we just read. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, and he, on the third day, God raised up the dead body of his son and exalted him as prince and savior to grant repentance to all of his people. You need to be brought into Christ. You need to be brought into the ark of Christ because the day is coming when the flood waters of God's wrath will come down and only those who are in the ark of Christ will be saved. I love this, verse 23. In Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits that happened 2,000 years ago, and then there's this interval, there's this time period between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of his people. Then at his coming, Perusia, those who belong to Christ. Verse 24, then comes the end. When does the end come? When Christ comes. When he appears, then comes the end. And we have this order of events here. Number one, the resurrection of Christ 2,000 years ago. Then at his coming, all those who belong to Christ will be resurrected. And then the end. And then he, verse 24, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And in Pauline language, or Paul's language here, this is almost always referring to fallen angels, principalities, powers, these, these, these demonic entities who wreak havoc in the world. On that day, he will decisively, once and for all, deal with every demonic entity and destroy every rule, 
every authority and every power that resists the power and kingdom of Christ. That's what's going to happen. Notice the order. Resurrection of Christ, that's the first fruits. That's the first guarantee that there's a, there's a crop, there's a harvest of life down the road somewhere. We don't know when the end will come, but we know that if he's been raised, everyone in him will be raised, brought up, as Isaiah said. The earth will give birth to life. The earth will give birth to people be brought up and raised with Christ. The end will come and he'll deliver the kingdom to God the Father. Again, we're talking about Jesus as the, the, the second Adam, right? The last Adam, the man, the Messiah, Christ Jesus, delivering the kingdom to God the Father. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus will no longer be involved in the picture because we read about elsewhere that the kingdom of Christ is an eternal kingdom, right? We read in Daniel, when we have that vision of the Son of Man, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. But we see here that Jesus, we see his, his position as a man, as Messiah, come in the flesh, the, the second Adam, the last Adam, to do what Adam failed to do and to undo the chaos that Adam created. And when he does this, and he subdues all of creation back to its intended order, he essentially says, here it is, Father. Here's my people. I've cleansed them. I've washed them. I've justified them. I've given them the Spirit. They are now adopted as your sons and daughters. Christ hands the kingdom over to his Father. Look at verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Here's a quotation of Psalm 110, where we see the Lord Yahweh saying to the Messiah, sit here until I put all your enemies under your feet. What is God doing? God is subduing everything and putting them under the feet of Christ. And in that last day, after destroying every rule, every authority, every power, everything that resists and defies the kingdom of God, putting, God putting them under the feet of Christ. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. This would have rocked the Corinthians because, again, they thought death was the chariot. They thought death was the beautiful reality that finally sets us free from the body. Paul says, no, death is an enemy. Death is an enemy. It's an, it's an intrusion into God's good world. Sin brings death. Disobedience in the very beginning brought death and has sustained death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I mean, death has so much power today, doesn't it? It's what occupies, it's what keeps our news agencies in business. It's what keeps hospitals running. It's what keeps funeral homes open. It's what keeps real estate designated for, um, for cemeteries. You have people make a living off, off gravestones and caskets. Death is very powerful. Death right now could level you and bring you to the ground by a simple phone call that so-and-so has just passed away. And death is so powerful that we use other words to just soften the blow. 
oh, so-and-so passed away. So-and-so has moved on. So-and-so has departed. Biblically, death is an enemy, and we need to see it as it is. Death is death. It's an enemy. But it's not an enemy that will have the ultimate victory because death will be destroyed, as we're going to see at the end. Verse 27, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Quotation from Psalm 8, talking about how God has entrusted man with the creation, to subdue creation, to rule over creation. Well, now Paul takes what was talking about man in general and applies it to the Lord Jesus Christ as the better Adam, the second Adam, the last Adam, and says, God has put all things in subjection under the feet of Christ. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, God, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him, Christ. And notice this, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Again, we have a picture of the perfect man, Jesus Christ. When all things are subjected to him, then he himself will be subjected, hupotasso, to arrange under him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Andy Nacelli writes, Similarly, Christ is the firstfruits of dead believers and that he is the first in a long train of those who have died but will be resurrected. This last verse troubles a lot of people, verse 28 in thinking that, well, maybe the Bible teaches that Jesus isn't equal to the Father, that he is somehow subordinate, he is somehow less than the Father. And as Gordon Fee helpfully says, in keeping with the rest of the New Testament, most such soteriological statements, when they include words about the Father and Son, express subordination. But it is functional subordination, not ontological, meaning not one that has to do with their being or their nature. That is, just as what is said much later, it has to do with Christ's function as Savior, not with his being as God. So this is a functional subordination. God, take the, the Son taking his work and saying, Father, as we saw earlier in the chapter, here's the kingdom. A purified people for your own possession, for my own possession, who are zealous for good works, and he's come to do the Father's will, right? It was the Father who sent the Son. It was the Son who came to do the will of the Father. In their perfect relations within the Trinity, the Son has always delighted to do the will of the Father. We get it all messed up today because we have such flawed views of submission and subordination today because sin has so warped our minds and warped our thinking that we try to project that now back onto the glorious, holy, holy, holy trinity, and we mess it all up. But there's no contradiction. There's no disharmony. There's no disunity within the trinity. We know that God being all in all, that same God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now what Paul does in 29 through 34 is he shows that 
them denying the resurrection of believers, they deny it in theory, but not in practice. And he's going to show that here. He says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? So this was apparently a practice in the church at Corinth. And he's showing, if there's no resurrection of the dead in the future, why are you doing this? Now, we don't have a lot of details on what exactly this means or what it is. Paul, notice, he doesn't condemn it, but he also doesn't commend it. And we have nowhere else in Scripture to lead us to believe that we can be baptized on behalf of the dead. I tend to think that there were probably people who, family members, loved ones who, let's say they passed away, they died without uh, being baptized, that a family member, a loved one would come and be baptized on their behalf. Maybe it was that. We don't know. I read somewhere this week that there are 200 interpretations of what this actually meant. And I've only looked at like two or three of them. The point is not to get us wrapped around what this means. The point is that Paul says, you deny a future resurrection, but you fools. You're acting like it is a reality because you're baptizing people on behalf of the dead. If, that's not, if, the resu- if there's no resurrection, why are you doing that? That's the point. And then he turns away from the Corinthians and he focuses on himself and the other apostles, verses 30 through 32. Why are we in danger every hour? In other words, your practice is vain and my perseverance is vain. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised. Paul's saying, you deny it in theory, but not in practice. Paul says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, which means I've already proven that there's no resurrection of Christ, then why am I in danger all the time for the sake of the gospel? Why, humanly speaking, did I fight with beasts at Ephesus? Now, some people say, you know, they, they're fascinated with the movie Gladiator and Russell Crowe, and they'll say things like, you know, Paul was thrown into that arena. Chances are, if Paul, formerly a Pharisee, was thrown into that arena, he would not have made it out alive. Probably wasn't like a King David or a Samson, right? He wouldn't have made it out. But, but in addition to that, being a Roman citizen, that they would have not been allowed to do that to Paul, as we see later on in the book of Acts. He's he's referring to, as the Old Testament often referred to God's enemies as beasts, as animals, as we read in Psalm 22, bulls, oxen, dogs. Paul says, I fought with the most ferocious people in Ephesus. For what? If If the dead are not raised, it's all pointless. He says, if the dead are not raised, verse 32, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection of believers then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's bounce out of this house early. Let's go enjoy Easter Sunday celebrating, not the resurrection, but chocolate chocolate eggs, right? And, And other things and furry, you know, horribly tasting yellow birds. I mean, it's awful. Let's just do that for tomorrow we die. Verse 33, he gives them three exhortations 
do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Your bad company, whoever you're listening to about the resurrection of the dead, these high-sounding Greek philosophers, whoever is putting this bug in your ear, don't be deceived. This, this company has ruined your good morals. That's exhortation number one. Look at the second one, verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. Exhortation number three. And do not go on sinning. In other words, stop this nonsense of denying the resurrection of the dead in the future. Wake up. It's as though you're drunk and you're stupor. Cease from sinning. He's, a call, he's calling them to repent here. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. You see, Paul had brought the message of the gospel. So there was an endearment there. There was a love, a tenderness there. And they had departed and, and they had said, oh, we believe the gospel, but we don't necessarily believe that the resurrection of the dead will come in the future. Paul says, you should be ashamed. You should be ashamed. This company of people, this bad company has ruined your good beliefs and your good morals, your good behavior, because behavior always flows from your belief. So if the behavior is bad, it's because the belief is flawed. He says, you denying the resurrection has led to, well, look at what the Corinthians were doing. They were arguing over which pastor was their favorite pastor. They were arguing over, you know, the Lord's Supper. They were arguing over um, the, the spiritual gifts, which ones were the best ones. They were abusing the spiritual gifts. They were, they were accepting of people in gross sexual immorality, chapter 5. They were a mess, all because of their beliefs. Stepping stone number four, the resurrection of the believer's body is reasonable. Reasonable. Look at verse 35. But someone will ask, and Paul's anticipating this because of the Greek philosophers of the day. This is not, by the way, an innocent question. And we know that based on Paul's harsh response. How are the dead raised? This is not, by the way. How are the dead raised? This is, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Again, this would have been repulsive to their Greek culture. They were trying to be freed from their bodies. So the idea of a corpse being raised from the dead in its original state, in its decaying, rotting, zombie-like state was repulsive to them. That's the question here. I mean, imagine somebody being raised after, after 40 days, after 40 years, after 400 years. The idea to the Greeks, it was just repulsive and disgusting. And that's the question. There, there's mockery behind the question. Well, Paul says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be. There it is. But a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. In other words, when you go and, and, and plant, you want to plant an apple tree, you don't dig a 40-foot hole and put an apple tree in that hole in hopes of burying it and then another apple tree emerging from that hole no, you put the kernel, you put the seed. 
Because what you sow is not the thing that is to be, but it's the seed, it's the, it's, it's the kernel. Paul says, don't think that what, you, what goes into the ground is exactly what comes out. It's a form of it. Verse 38, Paul looks at nature and illustrates his point. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. In other words, its own tree, right? There's the seed, but that seed will emerge and transform into whatever plant it is. And he gives an illustration. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, and the animals here is translated like domestic animals, domesticated animals, another for birds and another for fish. In other words, each of us has a different type of body for our environment. Thank God for that, by the way, right? Bob's not flying off to a mountain today, so he doesn't need a body full of feathers. Um, You know, Kevin's not going to leave this place and go back to, you know, Elephant Butte and and live there. He's not going to need like scales. Each of us is given a body for our environment, According to God's wonderful design and purpose, humans have skin with pores and and all that we have because we live here. But animals need different types of textures and and, and fur and and, and same with birds and fish. He, He goes to the heavens now, verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. In other words, everything is suitable for its environment. And now he gets to the main point, verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. And notice he lists four contrasts. Number one, what is sown is perishable. Now, by the way, we're not talking about actual farming, right? We we all know we're we're not talking about farming. We're we're talking about people dying as seed, if you will, and going into the ground in death. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's wonderful. The earthly body will die. It's not going to last forever. But this heavenly body will never die. It will last forever. It's imperishable. It can't perish. It can't decay. It can't break down. That's contrast number one. Notice contrast number two, verse 43a. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Dishonor, how? Because of the effects of sin upon our bodies. Our bodies are dishonorable things because of the, 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 the sin that has wreaked havoc upon these bodies. The sin that has defiled our members. They should be members of God, for God, but they're members, as long as we're under Adam and in, in Adam, they are members for unrighteousness. Our eyes are used for unrighteous things. Our hands are used for unrighteous things. Our feet go and wreak havoc in the world, as Romans chapter 3 says. 
Our ears are not used to listen to the words of God. Our ears gravitate towards gossip and slander, and our bodies are sown in dishonor. But God raises them up in glory. There there will be nothing dishonorable about our bodies in that day. Here's contrast number three. Weakness and power. Notice. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. In other words, when we die, we die in weakness, frail. He knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust, right? It's weak. And sin weakens the body. You read about in Psalm 32 how uh, when the psalmist failed to confess sin, it, it tore down like his physical frame. Sin has that effect upon the body to weaken us, to keep us languishing. Sin has that effect upon our minds, our bodies. It introduces death and different death-causing agents like cancer and illness and sickness and diseases, rare diseases, common diseases, everyday diseases, and they, they wreak havoc upon the human body. And most of you, many of you, experience this weakness and are discouraged by this weakness because you see it starting and you know, based upon your condition, it's only going to get worse. It is, and it's going to, you're, going to, you're going to sow that body in utter weakness and helplessness and powerlessness But your story, if you're in Christ, won't end there. It will be raised in power. Raised in power. Power that can't be weakened by sin. Power that can't be thwarted any longer or or prevented or, or, or hindered, I should say, by anything ever again. Raised in power. Some of us have a hard time moving around, walking around, doing simple chores around the house because of the weakness of the body. If you're in Christ, that's only temporary. It will be raised in power one day. And the fourth and final contrast, verse 44, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, this last contrast, natural versus spiritual, this is not ghost-like quality here because if 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 what he means by a spiritual body is a ghost-like body he's undone his entire argument up until this point spiritual think more of supernatural okay it's it, it it has to do with a body being empowered and energized by the spirit of god it's a spiritual body It's a body animated, empowered, sustained by the fullness of the Holy Spirit's power. That's how it's going to be raised. Right now, it's natural. One day, it will be entirely consumed and empowered by the Spirit of the living God. What a glorious truth. Andy Nacelli writes again, but Paul explains that God will give resurrected believers better bodies. God does not simply resurrect corpses with the result that there is complete continuity between one's earthly body and one's heavenly body. God resurrects and transforms corpses with the result that there will be both continuity and discontinuity between one's earthly body and heavenly body. 
In other words, there's going to be continuity. Milton will still be Milton, but the best version of Milton. Glory, power, imperishable, honor in its fullness. Empowered in, its, in, its, in the fullness of his body by the Spirit of God. So there's continuity and that we retain our identity, but there's discontinuity in the fact that what's sown in weakness is raised in power, what's sown in dishonor is raised in glory. In the eternal state, because of the work of Christ, you will be the best version of you as God has designed. And that's glorious, good news. So, Paul says that the resurrection of the believer's body is reasonable. It makes sense. We're going to need this kind of body for our environment. God is life. There can be no death there. God is does not decay, therefore we need imperishable bodies. There is no dishonor there in the glorious kingdom, therefore we must be raised in glory. There is no weakness in God, therefore we must be able to commune with him with fullness of power. That's why this is reasonable, Paul says. Stepping stone number five, the resurrection of the believer's body is certain. It's not just reasonable, it's certain. Notice verse 45. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, quoting Genesis. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Jesus' resurrected body is a pattern and model for what we will inherit one day. Now notice verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, so shall also we bear the image of of the man of heaven. In other words, it's certain because we are in him, we will bear his image in his fullness, in his glory, in his power, indestructible life, no more weakness. So we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. It's certain. The resurrection body of believers is certain. Again, Paul contrasting the two covenant heads over all humanity, those in Adam remaining sons of the dust, those in Christ sons of glory. It's interesting that in Genesis 5.3, Adam imparted his image to his son Seth. He was made in the likeness of Adam. But then you go on and he died. Well, then Christ, we're told here, imparts his image to those who belong to him. And what? So with this second man comes the resurrection of the dead. The only thing we can inherit from Christ is life and resurrection. Stepping stone number six, we're almost to the seventh one. Stepping stone number six, the resurrection of the believer's body is not just reasonable and certain, but it's necessary 
absolutely necessary. Look at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can the perishable inherit the imperishable. He's already told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, that there's other types of people that cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So here's what can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Unrepentant sinners. We're not saying sinners, because such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. Now he goes on from a physical point of view and says, this is, what, this is another thing that cannot inherit the kingdom of God, flesh and blood, as it is now. That which is perishable. And he goes on, verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. And when Paul uses the word mystery, He's not using it the same way the Barnes & Noble store has mystery genre. Something that's unknowable, something that's forever secretive, forever mysterious. Now, when Paul uses the word mystery in his writings, he's always referring to something that was formerly concealed but is now fully revealed. Formerly concealed, fully revealed. Formerly hidden, formerly obscure, now entirely clear. And knowable. That's what he's talking about. And here it is. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We shall all be changed. Now, I mentioned there's different euphemisms for death that people try to develop in order to soften the blow of death. Pass away, pass on, depart, go on. You know, there's a lot of them, many of them. However, when God gives us a euphemism for death, we need to pay attention because this euphemism can only be applied to the believer. The believer, when the believer dies, he sleeps only to be awakened. But when you read in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man and Lazarus, there's no rest no sleep, no calmness of state for the rich man. He goes and immediately finds himself in a place of conscious torment. But for the believer, we shall not all sleep. In other words, not all of us are going to die. But we shall all be changed. So, two categories of people. Those who, at the coming of Christ, never taste death, they're going to be changed. They're going to be transformed. Second category of people are those who up until the point of Christ's return have died in Christ, treasuring Christ, trusting Christ, have gone to sleep. They've died. But they too will be raised and transformed. So all will be 
changed, transformed. And he gives us a three, three, three markers in terms of the timing of this. One, in a moment, verse 22, or 52. It's going to happen in a moment, a split second. There's going to be no long metamorphosis like these movies of like X-Men, right? Of this guy mutating into something over a long period of time. Or, you know, most of us have seen this like old, uh, these old werewolf movies where the guy is like painfully transforming into this werewolf. No, this is going to be in a moment. He gives us a little bit more detail. Detail number two, the twinkling of an eye. In the twinkling of an eye. In the English, the twinkling of an eye refers more to like a sparkle, right? But in the, Greek, in, in the Greek world, it had to do with a blink. So we're talking about a blink of an eye. That's how fast it's going to happen. In the blink of an eye, blink. That's how fast it's going to happen. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Third point of description here, at the last trumpet. At the last trumpet, which always signifies the end of a victory or the end of a battle. In the Old Testament, it signified the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, characterized by this trumpet. Then Yahweh will appear, Zechariah 9.14, over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. We're told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, the Lord himself, speaking of Jesus, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Matthew 24, 31, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That's when this will happen. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet, notice, will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. It's going to be instant, radical, almost unbelievable if it weren't for the scriptures telling us this right now. Transformation of our decaying mortal bodies all in one instant. He says, verse 53, for this perishable body must, there's the necessity, must put on like another garment, the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality, the ability to never die. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, at that last trumpet, in that moment, in the twinkling of that eye, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Here's a quote from Isaiah 25. Death is swallowed up in victory. Here's another one from Hosea. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? What a picture we find in the Old Testament, right? People being swallowed up by the earth. Total consumption. Total desolation. Army swallowed up. And now here, death. 
the greatest enemy known to man, swallowed up, totally consumed, totally desecrated, totally defeated. When? At the last trumpet. When the Lord returns from heaven with that trumpet blast and that cry of command and that voice of the archangel, whatever that means and whatever that's going to sound like in that day, in that moment when we see our Lord, instantly we will be changed and then will come to pass what's been written. Death will be swallowed up, consumed in victory. And here's the victory taunt here, the rhetorical taunt. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Can you imagine the people of God that have, been, that have known death for millennia, hundreds of years, thousands of years, being able to look at death being swallowed up by the victorious Christ? And there we are singing, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He says the sting of death is sin. Right? It's sin that brings death, and the power of sin is the law. In other words, we know sin because of the law. The law comes in to increase the trespass. Trespass, Paul says. The law brings wrath. Why? Because when, we're, when we see the law of God in our natural state, we, we, when God's law says, don't push this red button, we in our arrogance go and push that red button. The law stirs up wrath. It stirs up sin. Now notice verse 57. Here's the climax. But thanks be to God. Stop right there. Thanksgiving is always given to the ultimate victor, to the one who does the work that we cannot do. When we say thank you to someone, it's because they've done something for us that was undeserved, was unexpected. And in the biblical storyline, the biblical narrative, we give God thanks because he has done something for us that one, sadly, because of sin, we were unwilling to do for ourselves. And even if we wanted to do any of this, we are powerless to do and affect any of this. And so we give thanks to God. Notice, who gives us the victory. I could see him saying something like, we, thanks, we, we give thanks to God who has victoriously conquered through Jesus Christ. But as we've seen here already, we who are in Christ experience his destiny. His destiny is our destiny. His life is our life. His death was our death. But his resurrection is our resurrection spiritually now and physically then. And so we are granted the victory through our Lord, our Master, Jesus, Messiah, the Christ, who has lived for us, who has died for us, and who has been raised for us as the first fruits of our future resurrection. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. We are more than conquerors. Paul's version of this in Romans is that we are not just conquerors, we are mega conquerors. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's why death, that's why life, 
That's why nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, because we have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory. Victory. It's like Isaiah, the end of Isaiah 53. We see Christ pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace falling upon him, and by his wounds, bringing healing to our broken, sinful souls. And by the end of Isaiah 53, we read of his victory. He says, God says of Christ, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. In other words, Christ isn't just enjoying the fruits of his victory off by himself in a corner somewhere. No, God says, because he carries out the fullness of my redemptive will, he goes and he achieves victory, but then he shares the spoils. He shares the victory treasures with all of his people. That's why when he says here in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's allowed us to share in his victory. Because when he died, we died. When he rose, We rose and will rise. And now we come to the last verse, verse 58. This final stepping stone is this. The promise of future resurrection and final victory ought to fuel faithful labor in the Lord. The promise of future resurrection and final victory ought to fuel faithful labor in the Lord. Always pay attention to Paul's therefores. Verse 58, therefore. Took us 57 verses to get to the therefore. It's a big therefore. My beloved brothers. He has called them fools up until this point. He has called them immature. He has called them Children, he has called them to come out and to wake up out of their drunken stupor, implying something else. And now he says, my beloved brothers. Three exhortations. Remember the three exhortations earlier? Do not be deceived. Wake up. Forgot the other one already, sorry. (laughs) Be steadfast, number one. Continue to stand firm on the gospel. Continue to be resolute on the gospel. And understand that the gospel of Christ's resurrection secures your future resurrection. Number two, be immovable. You have this culture beating against your boat. You have this godless culture with it prizing the death of the body as something to be freed from. No, 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 Paul says. We are going to enter into the new creation with glorified bodies, with glorified nerves and glorified taste buds and glorified eyes to be able to see and behold God with the clearest clarity that we can possibly ever dream of. To behold glory without fainting eyes, to hear the praises of God without the slightest hearing defects. We are going to serve God without any temptation ever again to use the members of our bodies as instruments for unrighteousness. Be immovable. 
And number three, be always abounding, always flourishing, always increasing, always overflowing, going over the top in the work of the Lord. Who's this Lord? Well, we saw in verse 57, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Be abounding faithfully, gratefully, joyfully in the work of Christ, the work of the Lord. What is the work of the Lord? We could do a whole sermon series on what the work of the Lord entails. It's Matthew 28, making disciples, maturing those disciples, marking those disciples in baptism. But isn't the Great Commission a lifelong endeavor? We bring people the gospel. We bring the gospel to our children. They're with us for 18, 19, 20 years sometimes. If God grants that, the work of the Lord involves raising them, training them, teaching them of their great need for Christ, laying down our lives for them to bring them the gospel. The work of the Lord entails husbands providing for their families so that they're not worse than an unbeliever, joyfully providing for their families physically, spiritually, emotionally. The work of the Lord involves husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. The work of the Lord entails women respecting their husbands and submitting to their husbands as to Christ. The work of the Lord involves you getting involved in the lives of those next to you in this congregation to strengthen one another, to to lift up those drooping hands and to strengthen those weak knees, to say it's time to seek the Lord. The day is at hand, the night is far spent, and our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Friends, the resurrection of Christ is not just this isolated event 2,000 years ago that means, well, now we're forgiven, right? Romans 4.25, he was raised for our justification. It's not just about our justification. It's about our future bodily resurrection. You see, we tend to think of the, 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 the resurrection of Christ in two categories. We tend to think of the work of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, in terms of validation, right? The resurrection validates the entire Old Testament. The resurrection validates all the truth claims that Christ ever made, right? He, rising from death, wins my confidence that I can believe everything he has said. The resurrection of Christ should be thought of in terms of validation. It validates all the truth claims of Christ. Everything he says he was and is, and everything he, it means that he is who he says he is and he'll do everything he will do. It's validation. We believe dead men all the time, but we fail to believe a man resurrected from death? No, we believe this. But the second category is we tend to think of the resurrection only in terms of vindication. In other words, God is there vindicating his perfectly righteous son who didn't deserve to stay in the grave because he didn't die for his sin. You see, the wages of sin is death, and equally so, the wages of righteousness is life. And so God vindicates his righteous son by blessing him, giving him, rewarding him with life. But friends, what this chapter is teaching us 
is that where there's a third category that we're to think in terms of the resurrection. Vindication, validation, and inauguration. You see, when Christ inhaled with those resurrected lungs for the first time that Sunday morning, that resurrection was the inauguration of the new creation. That resurrection was the inauguration, the beginning of something irreversible that would happen. The new creation dawned on the world that day. You see, for three days, that otherwise unremarkable tomb there on the outskirts of Jerusalem, for three days, that unremarkable tomb became the womb of the new creation. And when he emerged as the first fruits of an irreversible harvest of life to come, history was set. It's only a matter of time because he is raised. All those who are in him will be raised. And when he comes, he will raise up his people. The end will come. He will take all of his redemptive accomplishments and in joy say, Father, it is done. Now, where do you stand today? In Adam, anticipating death, or in Christ with the hope of resurrection life and sharing in the victory over death? I urge you to turn to Christ, those of you who aren't in Christ. And those of you who are in Christ, let us today thank God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death will die. Let's stand.